0: Hey, what's going on? Happy Friday. Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It's another Canucks Talk People's Show matchup. Jamie, a mashup? Matchup? No, not, not a matchup. It's not adversarial. It's a mashup. Says you. <laughs> Jamie Todd here. Nick Nazar, Drancer, is off today. A Canucks stock brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game, now found together online at DLEAMC.com. Coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber Text Line. Going on man, lots to get into today. Now we know if Cam Barra was ever a NHL head coach, he would match up lines. <laughs> He'd be a hard match guy. He was like, oh let's put the third line versus the third line. <laughs> real hard match. Yeah. Absolutely. Um so obviously uh the you know the news around the NHL is Kyle Dubas not returning as Leafs general manager. Their president Brendan Shanahan is going to start speaking any minute now. We'll let you know if there's any developments from that uh press conference. We'll talk a little bit more about the Dubas news in a bit too. But I do want to start with the game, the the conference finals that got going last night. A long one in Carolina. Panthers take game 1. And I got to say there's been a lot of, like, hand-wringing about, oh, these are, you know, not really big hockey markets. Is anyone going to care about these? Like, these are going to be good series. It's these still, are going to be really good series. It's still high-stakes Final Four hockey in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and that game was awesome. That still game was fantastic stick. last night. It's still puck and stick. Still some really good players. Yeah. I like, was, we had our- I we, was captivated. We had day. our two days yeah. to, like, oh, Sunbelt teams, yada, 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 like, Okay, I don't or, even really care about I, that I don't care yeah. about that either. Yeah. But whatever. Get that out of your system, park it, and enjoy the hockey. Because I agree. I thought that was a fantastic game last night. And it helps that it's game one yep. and it's equal stakes. It's not like someone's got a 2 0 series lead and you're like, oh, they're not even gonna come back, anyways. It, it, it was awesome to to start that series out and start this round out. I didn't think round two was that great. Round one Agreed. Was, was phenomenal, mm-hmm. right? And you always want it to escalate and get better. Round two kind of tapered off, I think, people's I feel like we've vibes. seen that before, though, a little bit. Like, sure. round two is always kind of the lull in the action, it seems like, or at least a lot of the time. Yeah. Um. Yeah, just because you want to hit the ground running. And because there was upsets and some big teams got knocked off, the star power kind of subsided. Mm-hmm. But now you look at this and like, all right, we got stars in all these games. You're getting good performances. And now I think players can see the finish line. And just getting to the final is such a big deal. And last night, like, even, it wasn't the prettiest hockey in periods five and six. <laughs> no, it sure was But effort was still there. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't lazy hockey. It was still committed. And, and you had to work for your space last Well, night. and especially, it's interesting, because especially in the first three periods, right? Because as the game goes along, the hockey starts to kind of devolve into something else. Which Law is, of Diminishing that's, Returns. That's yeah. just how it goes. But... In the first three periods, like, like regulation time, I know a lot of people have complaints about the entertainment value of the Carolina Hurricanes, which I think are fair. And I share those sometimes. There was almost something about the fact that Florida was playing so similarly to Carolina, like mm-hmm. which made the game more entertaining. You, you know what I mean? Rather than seeing Carolina kind of frustrate and shut down an opponent, these were two teams who were just like, we're going to play really similar. And I thought it made for fast, exciting hockey right like yeah there's a lot Wait, of do dump- people complain about carolina not yes. being entertaining yes oh cuz it's 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 a lot of shots from not dangerous areas right like okay yeah they're shooting the sure. puck a lot but yeah. how are they high danger chances they don't have the finishers I, I think the way they play is entertaining i just don't know if it's effective when you need it to yeah. be the most but, but i thought yeah. the specific matchup last night was yeah. awesome right just like two teams skating really fast playing really fast not giving each other any time or space uh, and just a really competitive entertaining game So we always do in the playoffs, right, like the kind of mental exercise of, you know, picture the Canucks playing in that game and how would it look. And usually it's a negative judgment, right? What I was thinking of last night, just watching that game through regulation and then, you know, I had a lot of time on my hands to think about things as the game stretched (laughs) through almost seven full periods. I wasn't so much thinking about, like, how would the Canucks as a team perform in this game, but I was just kind of going through the Canucks roster guys who are, you know, key players, guys who are likely to be here next year, and thinking, how would individual Canucks perform in this game? And even more than that, like, specifically, who would thrive? Who from the Canucks would have thrived in that type of game? Fast-paced, high-pressure that we saw last night. And, you know, I might be stating the obvious here. But I do think it's worth kind of reiterating. The guys that jumped to mind immediately, and again, I, I realize this is not like a, a scorching hot take, but I was watching it and thinking, Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes would both be awesome in this game. And the only reason I think that might be surprising to some people is you do still sometimes hear the like, you know, oh, are these guys built for the playoffs? Yeah. Right? They're not, they're not big physical guys, right? Do they have that kind of playoff game? But the thing that stood out to me last night, yes, it was physical. Yes, there's a lot of fast skaters. It's a high-paced game. But I thought the separating factor was your ability to process fast. Not necessarily to skate fast, but Mm -hmm. your ability to read the game and make really, really quick decisions. Because what those teams are so good at doing is taking away your time and space, right? Giving you absolutely no time to make a decision and hoping to force you into a mistake. You know, even Kachuk's goal at the end, it's Brent Burns and Jacob Slavin, two phenomenal defensemen who can't get the puck out because they're under so much pressure. In their own end. And the thing that Pedersen and Hughes both do phenomenally well is reading the game and making decisions, and specifically making really smart decisions to buy themselves space, time and space. You know what I mean? Like, Pedersen is so good at that clever little deke to evade somebody in the neutral zone. And then all of a sudden, he goes from being kind of boxed in to, okay, now he's in the middle of the ice and he's got a lot of time. Quinn Hughes, how many times have we seen it? Picks the puck up in his own end, heavy pursuit by four checkers. And it's a nice move on his edges and he's out and he's looking up ice and he's pushing the puck. That's what stood out to me watching that game was if you have the ability through whatever means, whether it's your strength, whether it's your skating ability, or whether it's your skill and your ability to process the game, to just buy yourself those extra seconds, like that's what's precious in that game is time and space. What those teams do so well and I think Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes, like, they have the skill sets to be excellent in that specific scenario. Yeah, there were a couple of players, too. And, and I know the broadcast, uh, Jen Brottle was doing a great job but uh, talking about, you know, the, the usage of someone like Eric Stahl, right? And that's a game. Like, look, he didn't play a lot. It was 24 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> Relative to how long the game was. In more was. than two full games. <laughs> yeah. <Relative laughs> wow, to how that's yeah. a lot for Eric Stahl. <laughs> <laughs> but... That's where like, you're talking about processing, and I just think of like craft and guile, and, mm. and just like needing to get through a shift, and not girded out or under pressure here, but there were so many moments where I just thought him and Lomberg just did a small thing, and obviously Lomberg gets the goal that gets called yeah. back, but just did something that carried the play on, and never found themselves stuck. And that, like, those are the moments when, like, here's someone who's been through it so many times, and just knew, hey, if puck comes to me, chip, pass the first guy, yeah. someone will collect it. I got to go fill in this space. And there were just so many of those moments, and, and that's why the space was so hard to find. Because there was just so many small, intelligent plays well, that weren't, like, the the, the, the play that's going to get us the scoring chance or something like that. But constantly putting yourselves and your teammates in better positions. You know what there was a lot of, to use a, a rec tocket Value Phrase. plays. Well, value plays, but also living to fight another day. Yes, yes. Right, because perfect. that's exactly what they're trying to do to you. They're trying to put you in these incredibly tough spots where your likelihood of making a mistake mm-hmm. increases, and then there's the turnover, and then they're not going to hold the puck for a long time. They're getting it right on net as soon as that turnover happens. And as you said, look, you're not going to be able to make a really pretty play all the time, necessarily, but sometimes you just have to chip it up off the glass. And the other thing with those teams is they all understand that's the program. right? Yes. They all know that, so they're like... Hey, if you're the forward and the defender just chips it off the glass, you are you have to go win that puck back. Yeah. That's how we're going to get it up the ice. We're not going to get it up the ice by, you know, the perfect stretch outlet path that hits you in stride. and Because the other team is just too structured for that. So I I, I was thinking a lot about Rick Tockett. I bet he loved that game. Sure, Last yeah. Night, like, that was Rick Tockett hockey, north, south, and guys living to fight another day. Living to fight another day for, like, four periods until there's the mistake that goes in the back of the net. But just wait out your opponent, right? Like, yeah. I've used the term, you've heard me say it, like boring periods. How many boring periods can the Canucks play? Because, yeah, sometimes you want to force the play and and make something spectacular. But this is what wins. Waiting, like being disciplined in whatever your game plan is. You can't make a goal every shift. But you can make effective plays. And you start stacking them and you start preventing mistakes. Puck yeah. management's going to be a big thing, obviously, throughout the course of the series. Actually, both series and at this stage of the, the playoffs. But I, I thought last night was a very good teaching tape of puck management. There were some icings, obviously, but just in general, making those intelligent plays to buy yourself the next play. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like you know, a quarterback throwing the ball away. Yeah, look, sometimes the defense wins. But how am I going to win the next play? Sometimes you're they've put them they've put you in a position where that's all you can do. And Plank you snooker. got to do Plank it playing snooker, right? It's like I'm just going to send it to the other side of the table, put it yep. behind the eight ball, and make you make a play. And on the flip side, I think that's a good segue, right? On the flip side, and there there are some other names that I think would have looked good in that game. On I the think Canucks. okay, over under four and a half players that you would throw into that. Well, it depends on the role. That, that's like, what I mean, though. Yeah, because like, could Dakota Joshua be a fourth liner in that? You'd Absolutely, p- he'd probably be one of the names. Absolutely, that plays I think healthy Ilya Mikheyev, yep, right with the speed and the ability to play that north-south game. Those are the other two forwards that really jumped to mind right away. Not to say that like everyone else would be embarrassed off the ice or no. anything like that, but just in terms of like who would thrive like, specifically in that game. As the number one right, try D, would Hironic go going over Brent Burns, probably not. No, but heronic, I think could be number two pairing defenseman in, yeah. that, in that game. Now, it's a little hard. We haven't seen him as much, obviously, on a day-to-day basis. But, but also in the playoffs. The, yeah, that's true. The, the one that stood out to me on the flip side of, like, who would thrive, though, and we can talk more about some of those names, but, you know, who would maybe struggle – is just the rest of the defense because we're talking about limiting mistakes Yeah, and what do we see a lot of from the Canucks defense. And even like, I like Ethan bear as a player, but watching that game, you were kind of like, I see why Carolina wasn't thrilled on having him because yes, he does a lot of things well, but there's also, sometimes the bad reads right mm-hmm. that end up with the okay instead of the puck going off the glass and out it's on the other team's stick like from a perspective of we're trying to eliminate mistakes and play this like highly structured kind of pre-programmed game I can see why Carolina was like ah, I don't know if Ethan Bear is the right guy for us so it was kind of beyond Hughes and Hronick like I was thinking a lot about how the blue, the Canucks blue line would have been handling this four check, and mm-hmm. I, I was not liking what I was picturing. Let's put it that way. Yeah, trying to picture blue jerseys on the ice in that moment uh, <laughs> is, is a really fascinating exercise because I was kind of doing that myself. And I was actually thinking of someone like Phil Giuseppe as well, and like on a fourth line one. That's a good one. Like he earned himself top six minutes yep. by sheer will of how do I compliment four people on the ice? If I get my points, I'll get my points somehow well you but, and you talked about like ryan lomberg making yeah. smart plays and stuff right or like even you know he's like a jordan martin type yeah. you know what i mean phil DiGiuseppe's not that but like as just somebody who really understands what they're supposed to be doing out there and works hard and brings that effort level i think DiGiuseppe is a good shout too because i i just looked at a lot of players that weren't necessarily trying to create goals but how do i put the other team in bad spots and digi constantly like I'm here on the puck. I'll hold it up. I'll make the other team work the entire length of the ice while we can get set up. He does all those things. Uh, now we got elevated, obviously, here in Vancouver. But that's someone who I, I think, honestly, I, I think we kind of overlook Phil DiGiuseppe sometimes. I, I think we treat him like he's like some undrafted free agent. Well, he's a second round pick. Yep. Like there is some pedigree to PDG. Uh, so, th- like, that was a player, obviously, you mentioned Joshua and McKay were, like, kind of the big three that kind of stood out to me. As like, yeah, they they could kind of fit as uh, complementary players in a game like that. Well, and I also think, you know, what was one of the things Rick Tockett talked about with Elias Pettersson a lot towards the end of the season was finding those complementary North-South players. Mm-hmm. And, again, like... I, you know, I, I thought as much as I'm saying Elias Pettersson 100%, I think, could have thrived in that game. You also see the value of having the more traditional North-South yes. forechecking players alongside of him. Uh, this text comes in about Elias Pettersson and Gwyn Hughes. Yeah, they're so good. Is that why they're never there in the playoffs? I don't know what to tell you, man. If you're hanging it on Patterson, like, look, I get it. Eventually, it's a bottom line business. If they're here, if they're here together for three or four more years and there's no playoff appearances, then yes, that part of that rests on them. But to this point in their careers, I don't think you can point to Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes and say they're the reason they haven't had more playoff appearances. I'm just going to go on a limb there. I don't think it's primarily uh, their responsibility. 650, 650 is the Dunbar lover text line. Uh, Get your thoughts in. Which Canucks? Do you think could have thrived in that Panthers-Hurricanes game last night? Who do you think would have struggled? Uh, the other big news, though, around the NHL today, it's official. First reported by Elliot Friedman and then confirmed by the Leafs. Kyle Dubas will not return as general manager. Uh, Brendan Shanahan speaking right now about the decision and basically says, you know, cause we heard from Dubas on Monday, right? That he was kind of considering his options and just looking at the kind of Cole's nose versions from Shanahan here. It sounds like they heard that. And then pretty quickly became clear. There wasn't going to be a financial agreement between the two sides. And they decided to part ways. And that they, um, the quote here is I felt differently in the long-term future of the Leafs had to change. That's from Brendan Shanahan. So it's partly mutual, it sounds like, partly Brendan Shanahan making the, the decision. And, you know, the fascinating thing, the, the big question for me here now, and you hear Shanahan say, the long-term future of the Leafs needs to change. Like, how much is the quote-unquote plan actually going to change? Because Shanahan hired Dubas in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So, how much of this is financial, and how much of this is they were once aligned on a vision for the team, and now they're not aligned, and Shanahan wants to get someone different? Or, is it We're going to try to find somebody who checks a lot of the same boxes and does a lot of the same things as Kyle Dubas. That's the question for me. The way it's being laid out, though, and I I think why today was so stunning, too, was it's rather surprising to see this much of a U-turn in a week Mm -hmm. that feels like there was communication between both parties earlier this week that, hey, we can try to work something out. Or at least the intent to try to come to a, a uh, agreement to come back, and whether it's financial-related, whatever it was, it flipped that easily. So like, I, I'm kind of surprised that from the team perspective, not the Dubis perspective, the team perspective would say, we, we don't want to break a certain barrier financially, even though we think you're the right person for the job. Like, this is an organization that does not have a problem with spending money. So, if you thought he was good for $3.5 million, but I'm just making up numbers here, Yeah, yeah. And your goal is to win a Stanley Cup, and you think he's the best person for the job, are you going to look back in this and be like, boy, I really wish we spent $2 million more? Yeah. It just, uh, is Is that a good process from the a team point and of the, view? The other part of this that's very interesting is that apparently, so, and we'd heard about a little bit of this from Friedman as well, that... um there were contract negotiations happening either after the Tampa series, it sounds like, based on Shanahan, even like back to March, they maybe started talking contract. And then the interesting thing is Shanahan saying that he did not want Kyle Dubas to speak to the media on Monday. His advice was, let's get this hammered out, and then you talk. And Dubas said, no, I want to speak to the media. And apparently, after that decision, Shanahan had what he called a shift in thinking and decided to go in a different direction. That's what I'm saying. It's like... So- so even after you lost to Florida, this was the plan, Yep. but a press conference in four days changed all of this. That, to me, is a little puzzling as how stable is the plan of what you're trying to do yep. or, or how deep are the cuts. That's something so minor. And I know end of season press conference and, and your messaging is important, but in the grand scheme of things of trying to compete for a Stanley Cup, that's fairly minor. Something as small as that triggering the change of perspective to me is uh, rather bizarre. Yeah, and I I got to say, and uh, obviously I haven't had a chance to listen to it live because it's happening while we're on the air here, so I'm just reading tweets and, and quotes from our producer, but it does sound like Shanahan is offering an awful lot of transparency and details to sure. exactly what happened. No, his version of it, but yeah, Absolutely, and we'll see what comes out in the coming days. Um, But the big question, yeah, then is, okay, so what does this mean from a player personnel standpoint and by the way it appears like Kyle Dubas sent an email saying I, he wants to come back <laughs> that's not even a phone call that's that's awesome I'm gonna send an email to Cam Barrow like, hey by the way I'm back <laughs> on Friday I, I'm off next week so on Friday I'll send an email I'll be like hey I'm coming back I'd like to come back the, to Dubas the just did the like day. uh the Jordan <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm back <laughs> And Shannon was like, what is this? Not even a phone call? Not even, hey, your your office is down the hall from me? Like, hey, I'm coming back. Send an email. So for you, does this change? Because I've always looked at it as Nylander, pretty decent likelihood of being traded. And then the next most likely was Marner, and I didn't really see a lot of potential for, you know, core four quote-unquote change after that. Does this change the calculus of what you might expect from the Leafs this summer at all for you? Yes, but like logically the right thing to do is probably bring back the core four for one more chance just because the contracts align that way. Well, and there's a good chance they're going to have a new coach now. Yeah, right. But now new GM, new perspective, new potentially new coach. Does that change the perspective and is the plan from above to say, look, we can't keep doing this now like this is why the human element is is interesting but I I kind of came into this week assuming the core four would probably be back because I, I just don't see a Marner trade. I, I think Marner is a – I'm stunned that there's been this much conversation to be like, this is the reason this guy is the, – the, the reason why we're losing because I, I think he's such a phenomenal player. And now with this change of heart, change of perspective, I feel like it opens all sorts of doors that we – that, me personally, I wouldn't have considered. Like, like uh, Austin Matthews, potentially. potentially. Yeah. I, like, I, if you're Austin Matthews, okay, Yeah, and Dubas comes back, Keith comes back, status quo remains. We all know, you know, hockey players can be creatures of habits. You are probably look at and say, hey, 12.7. Just make me the highest paid player. Mm-hmm. You, you argue and you want more, but now it's suddenly like your, your hard line a lot higher. To say like I don't know what the direction of the franchise is. I don't know if I'm going to vibe with the next coach. Great, you might hire someone fantastic, but are they going to? Is the relationship going to be the same? I got to sort this all out going into the final year of my deal while we're still trying to compete for all these things. And now if he starts saying 14 fourteen four, whatever the number is, and he takes more of a hard line stance on it because every the environment has changed now for Austin Matthews. This is no longer hypothetical. It's no longer a theory. This is what's being put into practice. To me, the only way Austin Matthews becomes a legit trade ship is if he lets you know he's not signing there. Not like, right, but oh, I- I you think- got to make it worth my while. Like, I'm not coming back. Because from an incoming GM's perspective, unless the mandate is mm-hmm. pull the plug and rip this down, which I would be shocked if that's the mandate. But like... But didn't they just kind of hand Austin Matthews cause to do that? Well, okay, but he has to still do it, right? Sure. You're not like the teams, but not they made it easier that. for him a little bit, for sure. But again, that's the only you're you're not just like you know what? Maybe let's explore trading Austin Matthews. I I, I just don't see the value in a new for a new GM to come in and immediately trade away your best player, who's let one let of put the elite players in the league. I think 31 other teams' ears just kind of perked up and be like, "Well, I'm going to make a phone call now." Yeah, but again, to me, it's only you only go down that road if you're the least, If he makes it absolutely clear he's not coming back. There's no, like, package that's enticing you. Like, oh, you know what? Maybe we should trade Austin Matthews. Like, teams aren't going to offer you that, right? It's only if he demands it that you have to consider it. Mike, much like the Matthew Kachuk situation, right? Where he mm-hmm. was like, hey, I'm not signing here. So, I was like, okay, well, now we have to trade you. Or even if he says, look, I really like it here. I'll probably come back. But I do want to see what the market is. Like, can you even risk that? No, I think then you probably got to move. But even that's like kind of scary. Oh, yeah, 100%. That would be terrifying. Uh, look, this is a fascinating um, press conference from Brendan Shanahan. We'll, we'll see if there's any more uh, juicy tidbits to come out of it and relay them to you. But up next, lots of goaltending stuff to talk about in these Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, our guy Kevin Woodley of In Goal Magazine joins us next here on Canuck Sports at 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Bick Nazar here filling in for Thomas Drance. Drance will be back on Tuesday after the long weekend. We're live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, we'll continue to bring you uh, more bombshells from the Brendan Shanahan press conference in Toronto uh, and more reaction to that. But right now, let's chat a little goal uh, goalie action here with uh, our guy Kevin Woodley from InGoal Magazine and NHL.com. Kevin, thank you as always. How are you? I'm um, good, thanks good thanks um, thanks for having me on guys yeah, of course, it's our pleasure so uh marathon four overtime game last night in Raleigh. the panthers win it, butbroski's excellent again, just in general when it's when a game goes on like that in the playoffs, how does it affect goalies and when you're watching, what are you kind of looking for to see how they're holding up under the strain um well you to me it's it's fatigue right
1: i'd be I'd be curious to know. Um, and, I, and I just had a, had a busy stretch this morning, been traveling and stuff, so hadn't had a chance to reach out to the goalie coaches, you know, quietly or on, in the background to, to find out whether guys were pumping IVs in between periods. I would suspect so. Um, the first thing I thought of when we got into that four-overtime range was uh, a conversation we had with J.S. Shiger, who, of course, they referenced the five-overtime game he was in, and what made his unique that also made that unique last night and will make any long overtime game unique the rest of the way is, is where they are. Right. Like, you know, like talk about this being a conference finals in the, you know, Sunbelt cities, uh, Jaguars was in Dallas, which is this buildings in terms of heat and fatigue. And obviously Carolina is busy as it was there. We didn't check the temperature, but I'm guessing it's hot. Um, just the wear and tear that takes on it. And for Jaguer. It was, he joked, like, if you ever had an IV, you know, it's normally a nurse giving it to you, but it was a team doctor, and the guy couldn't find a vein, and he's like, in his own words, he was just a bloody mess. And so they left it in. So they just left the feet in, taped it up, and he played with it under his equipment, and so that he could get into the locker room after each subsequent period in the overtime intermission – and just tap right into an IV drip. So um, I, I'm fascinated to find out just, you know, how much of that was going on for these goaltenders, but Brophy's guy, and you know, I know Elliot Friedman's been all over this in terms of how much that guy loses in a game. It can be 15 to 20 pounds and he's, you know, he's already a pretty slight, I mean, takes care of himself is one of the, you know, like the most intense um, workout guys in the entire league. I've seen his routine, like I've seen him get, start his routine, as we're leaving the locker room after doing post-game interviews in a regular season, he's on top of every detail, but he loses a ton of weight through fluids. And yeah, that's the first thing. And how does that manifest itself? Well, you know, it can be physical mistakes. So how are they moving? Uh, how does the crease movement look? Even even when they're not seeing shots, because most goals go in as a result of mistakes made one or two passes you know, uh, before the shot. You know, are they keeping up with the play? Is their footwork crisp? And then the other one that I worried about last night, because he's been so good at it this year, the Carolina Hurricanes have finally freed up for Andy Anderson to handle the puck. Um, it was always insane to me in both Anaheim and Toronto that they didn't let him because he's really good at it. But you worry about a mental mistake there, right? Like, And it doesn't even have to be him. It can be the wrong call from a defensive going back that leads to an easy goal while you're stuck behind the net. So you know, those are the little detail things that, that I look for, and frankly i didn't see any fatigue in those guys last night and i still have a hunch we could see different at least one different goaltender when they reconvene for game but it didn't it wasn't you know there weren't any signs of fatigue in their games to me even by the end of it and that's it's really impressive it's probably a credit to the sports science people around like even the rest of like we've seen these marathons before and by mm-hmm. the end like everybody Like it takes a mistake, it takes a bounce off something because everyone's just exhausted and the hockey gets ugly. But I thought they maintained, you know, pretty good pace and and a a pretty impressive sort of level of play even late in fourth overtime. It didn't get as ugly as it has in the past, and that too is probably a credit to the sports science
2: people involved on both ends.
0: So yeah, I'm with you. The goalies last night were, were phenomenal. I'm just curious, like moving forward with those two, if if they play, like. What are the first signs of physical fatigue that we can see? I know mean, you mentioned a couple there, but if if we're trying to keep an eye on some things, that like, oh, okay, the toll of game one is is starting to to creep up. Like, what are some things that people should be looking out for?
1: I think it starts with movement. Um, as crisp as both of them are, and there's different ways in terms of how they play. Um, you know where they play on the ice and and the sort of the areas and the the patterns they move through. But are they crisp? Are there be as a pass is made, are they getting to that next spot? Are they set? Are they square? You know, is there any drift in their game? When they arrive, are they still, you know, sort of sliding through, or are they or are, are they drifting through their spots? Like it's it's Christmas. It's details. And those are things that can slip through both mental or physical fatigue, right? Um, and those would be the signs I'm looking for. And that's to me that's this is a conversation that I think it's important the goalie coach weighs in on, they're going to know. Um, you know, I, I'd be willing to bet, in part because I've had conversations with them, that if Carolina had won that game, not conversations since this, but I'm at other times in the playoffs, if Carolina wins that game, I think it's an easy decision to go to Antiranta. Um, and, and we've seen him already, and I, I would have, if he was healthy, if it wasn't for the illness he had last round, I thought we would have seen him in that round. So I guess it becomes a braver decision and in some ways a tougher decision to make that switch now that you're down because you're risking going down 0-2 and you look bad if you don't start the guy who, you know, for all the talk about how good Bob was, so was Freddie Anderson. Like, he was really good in that Mm -hmm. game. Uh, It doesn't look quite as dynamic. It doesn't look quite as explosive as it does with Bobrovsky. But make no mistake, like, interestingly enough, when I look at it, you know, Carolina generated just over six goals in expected offense, and Florida was just below six um, if you include posts. Take out the posts, and they're almost dead even. Um, so, you know, I do think as much as good as Bob was, so was Freddie. And so it's a tough choice, but I wouldn't be surprised to see them make it. I, I don't know about Florida. Um, like I said, Bobrovsky is as good as it comes in terms of taking care of himself and obviously Alex Lyon got them into the playoffs and played really well early, but now you're talking about a two-time Vesna winner. Is it that much tougher to take him out? I'll be curious. I looked at the Dallas series in Minnesota. uh, First game was in Dallas, double overtime. You know, a lot of criticism over Minnesota going to Marc-Andre Fleury in game two, and obviously he didn't hold up his end of the bargain, but if you look closely at, at Ottinger, his game fell off in the next two after a double OT game. And it wasn't until game four that he sort of got his feet back under him. And Gustafson, when he came back in game three after getting a game off, was right back to sort of what you expect from him. And then he actually deteriorated as the series went on. So, you know, that's. They played two games last night, two games plus. And by the time we get till tomorrow, you know, that's three days. You're asking guys to basically play three and three, and arguably even more toll. Like we wouldn't do, maybe in the American League, but we don't. We don't normally do that. We don't expect that. We don't ask that of goalies at this level. We can't expect them to be at their best. And so the question becomes, are, are you better off with 100% on Toronto or an 80% Freddie Anderson, or is the number lower? Is it 90% of Bob versus 100% or line, or is it, or is it more accurately 75%? And I think they have to give themselves an honest assessment of that before they make the, that decision. And, and I think that in these playoffs, we've seen enough examples – where I would like to think that the old school thinking, I got my guy, he's my number one guy, I got to ride him, you know, is at least being reconsidered because I think there are teams that that has been costly for so far in these playoffs.
0: Because you know, in our conversations with you over the past couple of years, I, I've tried to view that that fatigue thing through a couple of levels, right? And, and I look at it through feet eyes and, and posture and to me I guess the eyes one would be the mental side of it and what part of that impacts whether it's reaction time or even if something as similar as like again posture like how your shoulders are in relation to the ice and in relation to the shooter and like last night it didn't creep up I, I, I'm then curious like what the mental tax of that is too
1: yeah I mean it, it kind of all goes hand in hand right mm-hmm. like your visuals tied to your physical um, if you're sloppy with your habits in terms of how you look off pucks um, quick side to side eyes, finding plays, finding new lanes, and then the physical initiates off of that, right? Like, and I think every goalie has different tells in terms of fatigue, and that's why it's important that you know, like, the person that's going to see those signs and know those signs the most, know them the best, is the goalie coach, because they know what that looks like when a guy's not on top of his game. The challenge here is it's not like you're going to practice today, obviously. So, can you see that or signs of that enough in, say, a morning skate tomorrow to make a determination? Or, you know, again, I'd be curious to know um, have either of them made this decision already? And it's just a no brainer because they know even if our guy gets through game two, he's going to continue, it's going to be continuing diminishing returns as we move forward or we reset and then we get back to him at 100% in game three, and we trust our other guy to give us a really good game too. i I'm not pretending that's an easy call. Uh, it's a gutsy call. It's a ballsy call, especially for Carolina because they're down and they're at home, and you don't want to be down 2-0. But, you know, I, I think increasingly these teams understand it might be the right call, and we'll see which one, if either, makes it.
0: Talking to Kevin Woodley of Ingold Magazine and NHL.com here on Canucks Talk SportsNet six fifty. Uh Western Conference final gets going tonight. And there's a lot of talk about uh, Jake Ottinger in the series against the Kraken and his performance. He himself said that he, you know, he didn't play all that well. What did you see from Ottinger in that series? And, you know, what what does he need to correct uh, going into this matchup with Vegas?
1: Well, I mean Hey, listen, if he gets uh, another game like Game 7 where he only sees two high-danger chances that actually are on net, that would probably help. Uh, That was a defensive clinic from Dallas in Game 7. And, you know, I know the legend of Jay Cottinger sort of builds through it. I saw the graph. I I had to chuckle. Like, the graphics at the end of Game 7 where he's now made 86 saves in in Game Sevens in his career. Never mind the fact that one was 64 and the other one was 22 with (laughs) literally two high-danger chances and one of them went in. Right? Like, 86 saves I'm just, it's, it's kind of funny the way we do that right uh, but it's playoffs hyperbole everything gets so gets sort of overhyped listen jake Gottinger is a legit top 10 talent in the national hockey league i think some of the expectations that came off his incredible playoff performance in round one against calgary last year i think they got raised to a point where you know i don't even know if it's fair to him frankly Not that he cares. I mean, if anybody's going to be like, the thing that impresses me the most about Jake Ondra actually isn't his game, which is impressive. It's his approach and his mental approach and his ability to bounce back from getting pulled in a game six to having a game like he did in game seven. And yeah, yeah, there were only two high danger chances. Dallas buckled down defensively. But all it takes is one mistake because Philip Grubauer was exceptional in that game. So you don't have a margin for error, and he knows that. And he did not make a mistake on a medium danger or a low danger chance. And that, that takes a lot of, in some in some regards, more mental strength because you know, you're know you not busy. You don't have a chance. You're coming off a pole. You watched a, you, the last game. You finished on the bench watching with a ball cap on. And now you know you can't make a mistake. And sort of that ability to reset mentally and not give up a bad one, um, like that counts. And he's a young goalie, and that's that's impressive in that environment under that pressure. So there's a lot to like there. I, I just think, you know, a lot of his numbers, and we saw this with Stuart Skinner too. Like a lot of his numbers this year, and a lot of a lot of Jake Ottinger's numbers in the regular season over the past two years, the raw numbers we see on an NHL.com that you know raise eyebrows about how good he is. Like they've been behind a team where the defensive play has been a large part of that. Doesn't diminish what he's capable of. We saw it in the playoffs last year, but I think sometimes those expectations are a little high compared to the reality of how much is team defense and how much is goaltending. And, and my expectations are maybe a little lower. There's been some inconsistency that surprises me, but like a lot of goalies, there are give and take in terms of what they do well. And like every, every decision you make, whether it's depth, save selection, post play, like every decision you make, takes one thing away, but potentially opens up another. And in the playoffs, the further you go, the deeper teams look at and pay attention to those trends, and the more they're going to try and isolate and target and play towards things you don't do as well. And so you can get exposed, and there will be games where if your team doesn't have that support in front of you, you will be exposed, and pucks will go in. It's your ability to sort of make adjustments and bounce back the counts. And Ottinger, I believe, has all those abilities, it's just, you know, we've seen a few more of those games where I'm not even sure at times it's him. It's just, man, like if the team's going to give up that chance with him, pucks are going to end up in the net. And so I'm curious to see, you know, where Vegas attacks, how they attack, uh, whether they try and stretch him out laterally uh, to sort of focus on that lack of rotation back to his post when he goes east-west. Um, if you attack him with short passes across the middle of the ice, he will eat you up. If you stretch him out and go wider and almost into dead angles where you set, get some more short-side exposure um, with longer lateral passes, then you have a chance. And so much of those results, we, we sort of, ah, that's the goalie. But the reality is if you create create certain chances against certain goalies, like I said, pucks will end up in the net. And So me, it's, it's almost become more looking at how these teams are attacking, whether they're able to create the types of chances that they – they know we'll have success. It's it's, it's back to the Vasilevsky thing. Is he bad on screens and tips? No, he's above expected on all those things over the last five years. But over the last five years, he's also given up the most goals on those types of chances. And he ranks 19th. He's not bad at it. He's still the 19th best goalie in the world at it. But he's the best at so many other things, or top five or top three at so many other things of course you're going to attack him in that manner. And I think that manifests itself as a playoffs go on with all these goalies to a certain extent, and the teams that can create those types of chances that highlight those relative weaknesses, not weaknesses overall, but relative to their strengths, are the teams that are going to have success. I, there's an element of this with Toronto and Bobrovsky. As good as Bobrovsky was in that series, I don't think Toronto went after him in, in, in a way that could sort of expose him as well as it might have been.
0: It would be, I, I have a theoretical question for you uh because you, you mentioned something in there that's a, a concrete statement that like Jake Ottinger is a top 10 goalie and you know detailing all the things that you know can arise in his game I, I'm curious like the difference between a goalie that um can play a lot of games versus someone that might have a little higher peak but can't physically or mentally play that many games and I, I guess I pair like a an Ottinger who played sixty, played a bulk of the games down the stretch last year as well for Dallas, versus someone like Linus Olmark who, you know, sp- splits time, uh, both in Buffalo and in, in Boston now. And if we're just kind of making these statements like, hey, top ten goalie, um, trying to rank those guys, I think it would be an interesting exercise to see like someone that can play sixty versus someone that hasn't crested even fifty.
1: That's actually a good question. Um, you know, and I haven't I'll be honest, I don't know that I have the answer on Elmark. He hasn't really been asked to. There's been injuries in the past. But even just take uh, the names know.
0: out of it, right? Like if I just had a guy that can play 60 because he has the physical profile versus someone that's going to play 48, even Availabil- though. Like,
1: availability yeah. is a key ability when it comes to being a goaltender, right? And even though we've changed the thresholds in terms of what we expect out of a number one, availability still matters to being a number one goaltender. And so, yeah, you do rank a Jake Ottinger a little higher um than somebody who maybe is tapped out at fifty and yet the level at which Linus played those those fifty games was like almost historically good. Mm-hmm. Like they, it's up there with what Shashirkin did last season. Your perfect world, you can do both. Um, consistency is another one Vic that sort of puts you in that category. And I I might even have Jake Ottinger up there too soon, to be honest with you. Like I when I say top ten, he had a top ten season this year in the National Hockey League. I just think some people when I say top ten, it's almost like I almost mean it as a like, hey, like, 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 let's slow our roll here. I didn't say top five, top three. Yeah. Um, and to me, he's he's in a tier below the Derkins of the world, in part because it's only two years, right? Like the playoffs were amazing last year. We're in, he's into the third round, and he gets tons of credit for that. But we've as we've gone on, we've seen more of those ups and downs, right? Like we've seen more of that inconsistency because we've seen more exposure. Again, I look at. You know, I look at the uh, expected save percentage for him over the last couple of years, and it's 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 been amongst the highest in the league. Right? So there are remain questions. If Dallas gets loose over time as a team, can he still perform at that level? Can he, you know, like horses for courses in golf, like can he be a goalie that succeeds behind any type of environment? There's a lot of time right now, about, you know, especially as we see Bob go on this run, like like, hey, can we find our Bob? And I, you know, I was tagged to tweet from somebody asking if um, you know Connor Hellebuck is available. If he becomes available, should the Buffalo Sabers go get him? And I think when we think of the reputation of Connor Hellebuck, when we think of the ability, finalist for the Vezina this year, one of as the trophy, all like he he's he's in that conversation. He's a top ten goalie on a year in year out basis, so probably even higher than that. But does that mean help the Buffalo Sabers? I wouldn't touch that trade with a 10-foot pole if I'm the Sabres unless I'm going to revamp how I play and who's playing B for me because no team gave up as many east-west lateral seam plays as a Buffalo Sabres. Eric Comrie's expected save percentage was in the 860s this season, lowest in the national hockey league. Connor Hellock's the best goalie in the league, in the world, if you attack him in straight lines. But if you go east-west on him, He's at, not only does his, does his results drop, they actually drop to below average. So if you're the Buffalo Sabres, and this is where you need to, you know, so so Connor Hellebuck is a top three, five goalie in the league, but he's not going to be if you put him behind a team that gives up chances that play to his weaknesses and not his strengths. Does that Connor Hellebuck is as a goaltender? No, but I'm telling you the results are going to change, and for the worse. And if you're the Buffalo Sabres and you don't recognize it you're running the risk of giving up significant assets for a guy who, frankly, doesn't fit the way you play right now. You better be prepared to change a lot of other things if you want to get the most out of it.
0: Woodley, great stuff as always. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. Perfect. Thanks, guys. That is Kevin Woodley, a regular insider here, on Sportsnet 650 from ingle Magazine and NHL.com. Uh, interesting question about ranking goalies who can play that workload. I think the other part of that question is like, do you want to be in a position where you're playing your goalie 60-plus games in the regular season? No, of course, yeah. right. It's great that they can, yeah, but do you also want to insulate yourself from that as much as possible? But then on the other hand, it's, okay, you want to keep them rested in the playoffs, or sorry, in the regular season, but you want to know that they can handle the workload once the playoffs rolls around, ideally. It it was just an interesting statement, because I I would have Jake Ottinger in my top 10, and I was kind of thinking in my head that like how many people would just instantly say, oh, Linus Allmark is a better goalie than Jake Ottinger. But uh, only, I don't think that many would, right? You know but, what I mean. But like that's why it's interesting, yeah. right? Like, well, if you only get forty-seven games of all Mark versus fifty-eight of Ottinger, mm-hmm. is that that difference? Look at it and say, hey, like I'd rather have the extra games of my number one. I don't have to dedicate more money to the backup and all this sort of stuff. Like it's obviously working for Boston, but like that whole conversation, I think is it. I, I don't know if there's a right answer. It's just all in the eye of the beholder and how you want to build your team and everything like that, but uh, the, the 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 key phrase there is you know, availability is the best ability, and it, it's true, right? Like, we can talk about what a player can do as your peak, but if you can't do it often enough, uh, that obviously lowers your value. Well, and I think, too, the point is not every game is created equal yes. for a goalie, so if you're creating an environment where they're not exerting as much energy, like, okay, maybe you can play the 58 or 60 mm-hmm. games rather than 50 or 52, right? Because... You've got that structure. You've got that offensive ability to kind of lock things down and make life a little bit easier for them uh, like the Dallas Stars do. Um, Lots of talk about the Leafs front office. Uh, We'll speak to a member, a former member, I should say, of the Leafs front office, uh, also former Canucks general manager, longtime NHL executive Dave Nonis. Really looking forward to this chat with Dave. Uh, He joins us every week here on Friday. That's up next on Sportsnet 650.
2: Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Vancouver sports fans. Halford and Brough in the morning. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Bick Nazar, usually of The People Show, filling in today. For Drance, Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game. Now found together online at dleamc.com. ccom Coming to you live from the Kintec Studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, uh, former Canucks GM, Dave Nonis is going to join us momentarily here. Of course, he was also the GM in Toronto and uh, lots to get into with Dave today about all sorts of things. Uh, also, as a reminder, we're going to give away 50 Cent and Buster Rhymes tickets. Do you have a problem with the way I say 50 Cent? No, no. I was laughing about okay. something else. Because Drance is like, oh, you're supposed to say 50. It's like, no, it's spelled 50 0 50. Yeah, if no. he wants me to say it the other way, he can write it the other way. Yeah, no, you say fifty cents. Yeah, I don't. think People say fitty, but not when you're like. I, I think it's one of the things. Things is like you have to know him to say fitty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like if you know if you meet someone whose name is Bob, you don't immediately start calling them Bobby. You wait to know them a right. little bit, right? You yeah. don't just go right to the Bobby, anyways. Uh, okay, uh, so uh, we will uh, we will give away those tickets later in the show, so stay tuned for that. But uh, as mentioned, now very pleased to be joined by our next guest. He joins us every Friday here on the show. He is former Canucks GM and longtime executive uh, Dave Nonis. Dave, thank you as always for doing this. How are you today?
2: I'm good, thanks. How are you guys doing?
0: Uh, we're doing very well, and uh, you know, I-, I don't know if you've had a chance to if you had a chance to watch the Brendan Shanahan press conference or catch up on a little bit uh, of what was said there. But we're all just kind of digesting. And reacting to that. And I, I, I do want to start with the Leafs situation kind of from the beginning of the week where we heard some really interesting comments from Kyle Dubas about needing to talk to his family and potentially wanting to step back from the job, you know, specifically for family reasons. You've done that job specifically, right? General manager of the Leafs. You've been the general manager here in Vancouver in a passionate hockey market. When you saw those comments from
2: Kyle Dubis, w- what was your reaction? Um, I understood them. You know, I I think that uh, I said Kyle's a pretty honest guy. Uh, I could tell that there was no he wasn't acting. This wasn't putting on a front of you know how how hard is it here in in Toronto and and uh, you should all feel sorry for me. I think he was just being being honest. Uh, and it it, it can. You know, it can be a difficult situation, even when you're winning. I mean, I, you know, there was times even in Vancouver where I was, you know, I remember one morning taking my son to school and there was a TV crew, you know, in my, my driveway. So, you know, those things happen and you have to be able to deal with them and understand that they are going to happen from time to time. Uh, you know, it can be difficult on, on the family. It can be difficult on your wife, your kids. Um, and you have to understand that and be able to deal with it because in the Canadian market, whether it's Vancouver, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, it doesn't make a difference. You're going to have a you're going to have a fan base that is is very interested, and in some cases may cross the line um, to the point where you know you feel like you're being invaded. But that's what you know going in. Um, you know, I think the, the expectations in Toronto were lofty. Uh, they did get further than they had for you know quite some time, but even after they got to the second round, you know, their, people weren't satisfied and the pressure was building, and I, I think that Kyle was speaking from the heart. It's just, uh, you know, some people can, can, you know, just digest it and move on, and, and others, you know, it can eat away at you, and it looked like that's what was happening with him.
0: Did you have instances of that with, with like players speaking to you as well? Don't put any names or any stories, but you know it, obviously it comes with the territory fairly or unfairly you know just hearing that story from you that that sounds very unfair but uh, I understand it comes with the territory at times uh it, it's 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 that constant attention and and do you like use that as part of the evaluation of, of how players can can manage with that?
2: well there are some players that want no part of it. there's no question and i I've, over the years I've tried to get a few free agents that even some that may have been local or had ties to the community, and they said, "I just, you know, that's not something I'm, I'm prepared to do. I want to be in a market where uh, I I can go to the grocery store and no one's going to know who I am. Take my wife to dinner and no one's going to know who I am. Uh, and that's how I want to live my life." Other other players embrace it. They like the hockey market. They love the fact that people care and you know, and that they recognize them and, and they feed off of it. Um, so you know, there definitely is you know, two or more groups in terms of uh, those who can handle that kind of pressure and thrive under it. And those who want to steer completely clear of it, obviously as a draft pick, you don't have a whole lot of say in that. Um, but when you, when it comes to UFAs, you know, they can pick and choose and, and some choose to get out of a high profile market.
0: And, and from the sounds of it, um, you know, with the leaf situation specifically, one of the interesting things about it is that it sounds like at different points, the Leafs wanted Dubas back and Dubas maybe wanted to return, but then it, it falls through and he's not going to be back. And, you know, just the negotiation. We always talk about contract negotiations between a team and a player, but between a team and an executive, how difficult can it be to, you know, okay, maybe there's interest, there's mutual interest on either side, but to actually hammer out an agreement and get a deal or an extension done for an executive, how hard can it be?
2: Oh, it, it can be. And it's the same kind of scenario. You, you want to make sure that you're um, putting yourself into a range of fairness and you want to, I don't think you. I never felt they'd want to put yourself into a spot where you're you're pushing ownership to a point where they have to make a decision. Yeah, you want to push them to the point where you're, you know they're paying you in the range of fairness. No one wants to be taken advantage of. So to me, it's it's the same. It is a lot like a, a player in that regard. In that you you want to find the range that fits for what you've done, the experience level you have, any success that you've had. And then you, you you want to hammer out a deal that reflects that. Uh, I you know I have seen and seen a, a few times over the last 25 years, where where managers have uh, been wanted back um, and negotiations have fallen apart over money or term, and and they've moved on. So it's the same type of, of thing that happens with an untreated free agent, where they sometimes you you try to get a deal done, and you can't. Um, but uh, you know in, in this case here, it was I think he hit the nail on the head. It was one where there was questions whether they wanted Kyle back. Then they did, and then you know, Kyle had questions of his own whether this was something that he wanted to do. At the end, it sounded like he did want to do it, and you know there was there was a point there from the from the team where they felt that they had to move on because of the indecisiveness uh, or or wishy washy interest, I guess I would say from Kyle. But um, you know, again, I believe that he wanted to come back and there were the, the family issues there that um, you know that made the last week more difficult for him. So
0: looking at the situation that the next GM there will inherit, I mean obviously there's a ton of talent there but we also know about the frustration and there there seems to be this desire for a new direction or change, but you know it's one thing to talk about, hey, we got to change up the makeup of this team, but when you actually get to, you know, does that mean trading a Mitch Marner or a William Nylander? it feels like there's a lot of potential to make a mistake there as well when you're just kind of making change for the sake of making change. How difficult a situation and really how risky a situation is that going to be uh, for the new GM coming in?
2: Incredibly risky. Listen, they they may have to make a change in, in the makeup. Maybe it's just the coach. Maybe the coach stays and they trade one of the players. You know, whoever comes in is enough to make that determination. But when usually when you trade the best player in the trade, generally speaking, the team that gets the best player wins. You know, that doesn't always happen, but if you look back over history, I think that that generally plays itself out. You know, there'd be very few trades that I can think of with Mitch Marner that really should would be getting the best player back. So to make that kind of a deal, you better be very sure in the package you're getting, you know, whether it's a combination of prospects or established players and picks thrown in. You need to be pretty comfortable that that package represents a, a, a really – an exceptional talent like Mitch Marner. So saying, I, I want to change the team entirely or major changes, and being able to do that, they're two different things. And so the the new manager coming in, I think, will have to um, really evaluate where that team is, uh, what they have coming, the holes that they have with respect, to the number of grievances that they're going to probably lose, and and then see what the direction of that team is going to look like. Now they're their window is still open. It's still a very good hockey team. Um, you know, they got some of the best players in the league on that roster. Um, but time is also ticking. You know, you've got Matthews with the one year left, um, you know, before his, uh, no move kicks in. And then you you're in between a rock and a hard place. Once you reach that point, uh, if he hasn't given you the indication that he wants to say, so the new GM's got a lot of things to tackle. Um, It'll it'll be, uh, you know, I think, a very busy and interesting summer for whoever gets that job. And I would also expect that um, you know this is going to be a job for someone who's done it before, because uh, you know this the importance of making the right moves. Um, you know, it, it, it could impact the franchise for for a decade.
0: Obviously, you know, whoever steps in and it has a lot of decisions to make internally for the Leafs. But you know, there's a new variable in the ecosystem of the NHL now. You know what happens for the other thirty-one teams that are looking at Toronto and saying, "Like, what opportunities does this present?" Like, what would go through your mind after the news today?
2: Well, I, I think you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have to see what type of person comes in and what direction that they want to take it. You know, I, I highly doubt that whoever comes in is going to say, "You know, we're going to really change the look and we're going to move two of the top four and we're going to, you know, this is what we're going to do." I, I just don't see that. I think they're going to try to change the the look of the of the team, maybe maybe through free agency, uh, maybe making a move with one of those you know high end players, um, but I don't think you're going to be in a situation where you can take advantage of Toronto right now. I think whoever goes in there is going to take their time like they should, um, and I think they're going to have experience. I, I would be I would be surprised if it's, uh, if it's someone who uh, is new to the NHL. Put it that way.
0: Can you take us through like the the whole process, right? Like. Th- this is a a job that is foreign to the general public here, right? Like we log onto websites, Dave, and we go to Indeed. dot com and we try to find the next job. Like, what's the recruitment process like that? L- like for execs trying to get into these roles, and like what happens in the interview? Like, are you coming prepared with a presentation of what you would do? Or uh, like, w- w- take us through that whole journey of the the process of getting hired and and what that interview process looks like.
2: Yeah, I've been through through five or six different types, and and really they are all different. I have been through one where uh, the club and ownership asked for a two-hour presentation of, you know, a PowerPoint, run through everything that you can, whether it's your relationship to the community, to how you put a team together, how your scouting staff works, you know, really in-depth. I've also had, uh, you know, a couple where it's been very low-key, just sitting around a table, just uh, talking about, you know generally your philosophy on hockey and team building and and things like that um in terms of recruitment you know generally uh you know, teams will reach out to you if you're work if you're under uh contract to another team they have to go through mm-hmm. the league and through the club itself to get permission uh you know you can't just make contact with someone and say if you have any interest let me know and we'll bring in for an interview there's a process that has to take place there or, or there's tampering, just like there is with a player. Um, so, you know, that's generally how it, how it works. Most teams bring in or, or talk to, maybe, you know, in today's world of Zoom, they talk to 10, 10 or so candidates and then whittle it down to five or six, bring that that group in for a face-to-face interview, and then they move forward from there and be down to two or three before they make their decision.
0: How specific do the interviews get? Because it's one thing to have kind of a two-hour presentation, but do, do, does it come up? You know, hey, we have player X that we're in a bit of a dilemma with here, or we're you know we're approaching a a decision point on them. What do you think? What would you do? Do you ever get into that kind of territory in these interviews?
2: In some of them, yeah, definitely, yeah. There'd be, a, you know, where do you see as our our issues going forward in the next six, twelve, eighteen months? Um, how do you how are we going to deal with them? You know, player X has uh, one year before he's unrestricted? Are we going to try to sign him? What would that take? Uh, How does it impact our, our uh, balance sheet going forward? How does it impact our cap going forward? All those, yeah, some, some um, people and some interviewers uh, are very specific about certain players and then the impact of the decisions that you're going to make. If I make this decision, what impact does it have, you know, long-term sometimes, you know, again, from a fan perspective, they don't always understand that, you know, you, you ask the question of is this player signable and should we sign them well short term that might be a real good idea as we've talked about before but sometimes it takes seven or eight years to sign that player and you can look you know five that years down the road and you you've got uh you know you've, you've got an albatross so um those are the questions that some of the more thoughtful ownership groups will ask it's not just can this guy help me next year but can he help me two or three years down the road. And and what is the impact if you can't help us? So uh, yeah, there's definitely scenarios where, where specifics come into play.
0: Those are moments when you're prompted. Have you presented ideas that maybe were sternly pushed back on or, or have you presented ideas that maybe the, the team and club hadn't thought about that warmed your perception up to them to, to get the job?
2: I've, I've always wanted to tell them the truth. I mean, I think if you go in there and you you try to get the job by by telling them something that's just you know patently false, and I think that you're you're not in a good situation from day one. Sometimes people don't like to hear that; um, they don't want to hear the, the the fact that there are issues and there are problems. And um, but I, I I think I was going to an interview, looking at the good the good and the bad, not just the good, and you have to present them both uh, and, and in a balanced way and be able to identify what you're going to do about the negative issues, what you're going to do about the contract problems for the other issues that you might be uncovering and unearthing. So to me, I think it has to be a balance. If there's, you know, if you're talking to a to a president or an owner that just wants to hear that his team's in really good shape when it clearly isn't, it's probably not a great job to be looking for anyway, um, because, you know, you, you have to address those, those problems. And uh, generally, you, you want to start day one, not waiting six months and then going back to ownership and saying, well, you know, I thought we'd be better, but we're not. So we're going to have to, you know, really, really, you know, pivot on what which direction we're headed.
0: In conversation with former Canucks GM Dave Onus here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet six fifty. And you know, one of the other interesting things about the executive hiring cycle and world today in the NHL is, you know, so many teams now use the the president and GM structure. So there's two kind of top level hockey execs. But we're also even just seeing some some differences within that model. And I'm thinking of. You know, in Philadelphia, they hire Keith Jones as the president, but they're making it pretty clear that Danny Briere is really going to be the one running the hockey personnel side of things as the GM. How much does that kind of change and, and put a greater emphasis on just being exactly clear about? Okay, you're hiring me for X role, and here are the duties that I'm going to have. Here are the responsibilities I'm going to have, and here's what's you know the other position is going to do. It's
2: it's imperative that there's a it's a, a pretty good understanding going in because you don't want to have a situation where the manager is saying, this is what I think we're going to do, and the, and the president says, no, we're not. Uh, be, because at that point, the, the manager really has been you know, covered and, and there's no ability for, for him to, to get the job done. Uh, you know, I think that, that the president uh, of Hockey Operations and general manager working together can work. Uh, I think if it's two people that kind of think the same way, uh, if they both have some kind of a hockey background in, in terms of knowledge of the league and how teams are built, you know, that president can be a, a valuable sounding board, um, you know, where you I think where you can run into trouble is if that president does have, does not have that background um, and, you know, offers a strong opinion and it may not be one that you want to listen to. So, uh, you you want you want to make sure that you have that uh, you know that uh, a cohesive I guess unit and it doesn't mean you have to agree or anything like that but I, you know I think that having someone that's on board that you can talk to about the direction of the team and you know even even little things of, uh, such as uh, of, of hirings yeah, that that can be valuable if it's the right person no question.
0: While we're talking about all these potential openings and and next moves, uh, have you been preparing powerpoints uh, here, Dave? Getting ready for this hiring season?
2: Well, hey, are you trying to get rid of me?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, Dave, I wish you nothing but success, but I would be sad <laughs> to lose you as a guest. Very much so. Your name has been mentioned here in the past uh, ten days.
2: Yeah, listen, if, if there's the right the right scenario, uh, I would I would definitely look at it. Um, you know, from uh, my standpoint, I've really enjoyed stepping away this year and, and, and doing the media with you guys and other locations, and NHL network and things like that. It's been, it's been a, an eye opener of being able to watch the game a different way, uh, and probably a more pleasurable way in some, some cases. But I think the you know, the people that have been involved in teams and I've been involved with the team for, you know, close to 30 years, uh, if it's the right situation, I would I would love to go back to work for a team. If it's not, then I'll continue doing doing this, and and we'll be talking every Friday. So we'll we'll see how this turns out.
0: Uh, while we're talking about things, uh, last night in the in, in the league, uh, we saw uh, a four OT game. Uh, I want to ask you. Obviously, you're familiar with long OT games, as we saw uh, Vancouver and Dallas. What was the planning like in the days between those games? And you know, for for endurance care and, 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 physical performance, like what things did the Canucks do to get ready for the next game?
2: Well, I mean, that was, I think in 07. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as much as we were thought we were advanced in terms of nutrition and care and, and, you know, uh, building energy systems back up, we didn't have any idea compared to where they're at today. Um, so with that said, you know, the same principles applied. We, we didn't even think about uh, video the next day or practice the next day. Um, it, It was all about trying to get energy back, you know, having the proper treatments, making sure that everyone was eating the proper food, the proper amounts, you know, hydration levels. It wasn't, the next, you know, 24 hours had nothing to do with hockey. And I can tell you that that is definitely the same situation that's happening right now with Florida and Carolina. They're all they're thinking about right now. Yeah, the coaches are looking at the tape, and the coaches are doing that stuff behind the scene. They're getting ready. They're getting ready for, for you know probably the pregame meal, and they can go over their video then. But up until then, there's they're not even talking to the players about the game, about anything going forward. It's all about trying to get healthy and trying to get uh, your energy back because when you play that long, if you look at the minutes that were played by a couple of those players, I mean, there was at least four or five that were in the 50s. I think Brandon Martour was almost, almost at, at I think he was at 59 or 58. Like that is an incredible amount of ice time to put, you know, someone through even over over a, a three-game period. That's a lot of ice time. So um, you're not going to get that back right away. It's just it's going to take a little time and some effort. Uh, but that's their focus. It's nothing to do with hockey. It's nothing to do with the with the systems, X's and O's. Uh, They'll just take care of that right before the game, and between now and then, it's gonna all be about, you know, getting healthy.
0: You know, it's stressful for fans to watch a four overtime game like that in the playoffs for your team. I can only imagine what what was it like for you as an executive, and what was the reaction? Uh, take us through kind of uh, how you reacted when Henrik finally scores the goal and wins it.
2: You know what? That was a it was a, um, an incredibly intense game, um, and the the scoring chances in that game and in overtime weren't as plentiful as they were last night. It was kind of a more of a chess match and just waiting to see who was going to finally get one. But you almost felt like it wasn't going to end. And, and, you know, because you get, you go from one period to the next and it, you're not really getting a lot of great chances, neither are they. Uh, it's like, how long can this possibly go? And, and then as last night, you know, generally it's a turnover or breakdown that you didn't expect that ends up, you know, the puck in the back of the net, but, I can tell you that winning that game felt fantastic. I can only imagine how bad that would have felt losing it. Like you go that long, you go that hard and you, you know, you're, you're not successful. And all you have to do is look at the coach last night and his interview after the game. I mean, he's a, he's a very uh, stoic guy at times anyway, but I could see the disappointment, you know, in, you know, in Rod's eyes, just due to the fact that how much effort they put forward and how hard they worked and they were ordered with nothing. so, That's the hard part in the game that goes that long.
0: Uh, Dave, thank you. Great insight as always. And I want to say that I hope that uh, we'll be talking to you every Friday. But (laughs) as as I said, I'm torn because, you know, I also want you to have all the opportunities that you're looking for. So either way, I'll be happy. Have a great weekend, Dave.
2: You guys too. Take care.
0: That is uh, Dave known as former Canucks GM, former Leafs GM and longtime uh, NHL executive. Yeah, his name's popped up there and – Nice to hear him. Just say, yeah, hey, if it's the right opportunity, that'd be great. But uh, this thing, this doing this media things, a, a lot of fun as well. A lot of pressures with this gig, too. <laughs> so much pressure. So much pressure. That's um, what like that story that he was telling like when he was GM? Like, oh man, news media uh, in your driveway when you're trying your to driveway. take the kid Look, to school. I, I've, that's had tough. A, I've had a player tell me that like pl- the children uh, get bullied at school. Yeah, that's the. <sighs> Like that's the real the dark side of of the passion thing, right? That you don't want to hear about. That's just ridiculous. Like leave people's families out of it, right? But <laughs> you like, know, it comes to the territory. I, 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 get I say that. this like kids aren't going to always know better, right? And it's so, sure it, and I don't mean the the, the players' kids or the yeah the, the yeah. yeah. Kids. I know it's like other kids in the school. I, I'm not condoning it in any means, but like that's the environment that you live in. It's like that's the sort of stuff we don't always consider. And I hope hearing Dubis earlier this week was a kind of a stark reminder. It's like, these aren't just execs, these aren't just players. They are members of our society. And your fandom does have to take a, a seat sometimes when learning to interact with uh, the players and their families too. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. A final segment of the week coming up. Uh, before we get out of here, uh, I asked producer Dom to put the uh, ticket giveaway read in the rundown. Not seeing it in there as he throws his hands up. You so want me to do it? We'll have to wait. Yeah, you do it. Go ahead. I, I've been. You can take over the duties here. Giving them away on the People Show. Uh, pair of tickets 50 Cent and Busta Rhymes That's at right. Rogers Arena. September 8th. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.ca. Again, Rogers Arena, September 8th. Call at number 3, 604-280-0650. 604-280-0650 for a pair of tickets to 50 cent. And Busta Rhymes. I, I want to read this text, though. Uh, more Leafs talk on Sportsnet 650. 50. <laughs> that's good. That's strong. That's a very good text. And I mean, what do you want? I always, my rule is always like, if it's something bad happening for the Leafs, then talk about them as much as you want. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. Like then it's like, well, it's okay because yeah. we're like, we're relishing yeah. in the, the misery that they're experiencing. So that's great. I, I just like the 6 feet part. We'll no, play no, no, it. We'll play it. Well played. Well played. Uh, okay. Final segment of the week coming up. Uh, we'll have some fun. Uh, we'll throw a question by you as well. I'll throw this one out to the listeners right now. What is your ideal form of hockey? I don't even mean like the form you think is the best at winning, but just what's the hockey that you like watching the most? We'll talk about that. We'll read your text as well. Uh, final segment coming up uh, defense, here on Sports 650. Defense.
2: I went home and just before dinner time I got an email from Kyle saying that he did want to be the, uh, the general manager of the Maple Leafs. At that point I have to if I'm being honest, I I was I had gotten to a different place about how I felt about the future of the Toronto Maple Leafs.
0: That is uh, Maple Leafs president Brendan Shanahan speaking earlier today about his decision to part ways with former general manager now Kyle Dubas and. Yes, the fateful email. Welcome back to Canucks Talk, by the way, here on Sports Dead 650, uh, Jamie Dodd, Bicknazar, final segment. But yeah, the the fateful email from Kyle Dubas around dinner time on Thursday, saying, "Oh, hey, by the way, I, I know I said I was considering stepping away, but I I've decided I want to be back. I want to be back." You know, you when you hear it instead of read it, it really comes off like, "Oh, he's being too clingy for the job." We got to back away from this. It's yeah, like, this person's so, too eager to want this job. Some interesting stuff went down there. I think it's safe to say between Dubas and Shanahan. We, and we've heard the, like, you know, cleaned up Shanahan version. I'm sure at some point we'll yeah. hear the Dubas version. Who, uh, according to Pierre LeBron yes. did reach out to Kyle Dubas. And he respectfully declined to comment, saying that there will be a time and place uh, for that. But, yeah, the release is like, I heard he wanted to come back. And then I was like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> Shams, ah, like, oh, but too late, too late. I'm going to try that negotiating tactic with Barra uh, next time my contract <laughs> is up. Just wait till the 24th hour and be like, oh, hey, by the way, I want to be back with a raise and see what he says. Just right at dinner time, right as he's sitting down to dinner uh, with his family. Uh, it is Canuck Stock here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Bick Nazar of The People Show filling in as well. Friday before a long weekend, very exciting. We're live from the Kintech studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at Dumbarlumber.com. And congrats to Kessler. Kessler uh, for winning uh, tickets to 50 Cent and uh, Buster Rhymes coming up in September at Rogers Arena. You can get your tickets right now. Um, I threw this question out there just before we went to the break, right? I, it's just something I've been thinking about. And actually, you know, what... The question I threw out to the listeners was, uh, "What is your like ideal aesthetic version of hockey?" Put put whether it's successful at least partly to the mm-hmm. side, but just like the version of hockey that you like. What is your hockey identity the best? I wouldn't because identity then it starts to track to like, and I think this is going to be successful. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of overlap. Okay, yeah, yeah, there's going to be a lot of overlap uh-huh. in these categories, right? I get that, but just like, what's what's your favorite type of hockey, or kind of hockey, style of hockey to sit down? and watch and this is something i've been thinking about this week because i realized that i have a huge internal bias towards teams that are great on the cycle Mm -hmm. and teams that can dominate down low beneath the goal line along the boards below the dots whatever you want to say rag the puck super strong on the puck and just hold it and work it into the zone or into the slot for a chance and obviously like thinking about it it's probably because I spent so long watching the Sedins, sure. and they're the best at it. Now, I don't need it to look exactly like how they do it because I, you know, I really enjoyed watching both Dallas and Vegas, and I think those are two teams. That excel at doing that, right? Well, that that Robertson Pavelski. Really Oh, yeah. Man, it's is one of the best, possibly the best line in the league at it mm-hmm. right now. But you look at like Mark Stone, right? His ability to do that. You know, Ivan Barbashev has really complimented their ability to do that in Vegas. Like there's just something about that to me where I sit down and I watch it, and I see a team cycle below the goal line. I'm just like <laughs> I do the Leo DiCaprio meme, right? Where I'm pointing <laughs> at the TV, I'm like, ah! Yeah! That's hockey right there. Let's go. That's what I'm talking about. Whatever sound Leo makes with his voice is yeah. so good. Yeah. And you, it's funny because I actually I saw you uh, in the studio earlier this week when we weren't working together. And I, I just kind of popped yeah. this question to you. And you were like, dude, this, this is was, a little personal. It was it was 90 seconds before I had to go on air. I was like, I can't give you an answer in 90 seconds. I was like, dude, I, I'm going on air in 90 <laughs> Why seconds. Why did you spring this on me? And then no, but also, i brought up a, a great question. I brought up Dallas and you roasted me for uh Getting on board oh with the Dallas God. Stars after you you were an you, early adopter. You and Randy last year. And look, we're, we're, philosophical styles of play is is what dictated the conversation last year, right? Yeah. Everyone knows I'm pro defense or you really believe it like a, a defensive foundation. Strong defensive is, identity. Yeah, is, is how you need to win. You can be offensive, but if you don't have defensive principles embedded into your game, good luck. And so last year, the team that pushed it to the extreme was the Dallas Stars. And yes, I enjoyed that, but players are are always gonna dictate philosophy. Mm-hmm. And to me, like I looked at the Dallas Stars and we were talking about this last week. Like Rupe Hintz was a guy I just loved as soon as he stepped into the scene. And then he graduated He's one of my favorite yeah, players. He to watch. graduates into bigger roles and suddenly now he's crushing it in the playoffs and it's 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 great to watch. But Jason Robertson is an exciting player, Mira Isken is an exciting player. And now that the Philosophy has changed. They can play a lot more open, and I think that people are seeing the, the, the true talent that they have. But to me, it's always about I like the players, mm. and then they were playing defense, and look, I was an early adopter. But it was always about the talent that's available. Like, yeah, if, well, if, like if everyone, put... I think everyone enjoyed watching Hintz and Robertson. But right. the entertainment value overall was being severely limited. Now I think right, one, but then, there's there's more talent. Right, there. but everyone penalized them for being on the Dallas Stars. Like they have no say on the Dallas Stars. No, no, no but it wasn't it wasn't a slight at and Robertson. It was a slight at the overall entertainment value of the team. They played boring hockey. They you did. can't love don't... them at their best and hate them at their worst. Yes, like, you, they, you absolutely can. Why wouldn't I? But then it's not about the talent of the players. It's about like the overall. No, no, but there's more talent now. Okay, like in a Dallas game, last year you might have enjoyed watching that line, but the rest of the time you'd be bored stiff. Now, Look, it's just because you looked away when the other three lines came on doesn't mean I'm like, now it's, it's more it's, entertaining it's up and down the lineup. It's not irrational. The product changed, so my reaction to it's going to change, and their roles have also changed because of that. And I was like, "Oh, the Dallas Stars! Like, where were you cowards last year?" They were boring last year. They upped their game, and now they're entertaining. Now they're fun to watch. Now they're not just a one line team. They got That's, better. And it's, it's, they anyways, raised. They anyways. raised the standard. Anyways, we got into this what conversation. What are we talking about? We, we got into this conversation of uh, just, just like, wh- what's your aesthetic? Yeah. And uh, I didn't have time to give you a proper answer, but it just in my head, I was like, oh, the team that like I I, I marvel at a lot is like those those. Early 2000 Red Wings. Sure. O2 Wings. Mm-hmm. Obviously, people here from very familiar. Now, it helps when you have Hall of Famer after Hall well, of Famer yeah. after Hall of Famer. But also, just think of the age profile that they were at and the steadiness those guys had. Not so dissimilar to what you're talking about. Like uh, a Brendan Shanahan, mm-hmm. Iserman, Like those guys just working down low. And then I'm trying to think of more of a modern version. Modern O2. Uh, a, a more recent version. And I, I come down to more mental components than where the puck is on the ice and all this sort of stuff. And I, I just look at these recent Lightning teams. Yeah. And, look, it helps, again, when you have Norris and Vezna and Hart Trophy players all over the roster and Sulky winners. But the mentality to compete and give everything that you have. Dom and I were talking about this yesterday with the Miami Heat in the NBA right now. Like, I love watching that team because they are going to make your life hell. And that's where I am right now is I like watching athletes compete. And if you get a cluster of those type of players, how do you make it look? Now, there's still things I want to see on the ice, but, yeah, defense is a huge component of it. But that that cycle game that you're talking about, part of it is it's it's a safe style of game. Mm-hmm. that has great reward because... You can, well, that's the thing. It's not, you can be like, to, so look at the Sedin teams at their heyday, like some of the highest scoring teams in the league, right? And it wasn't just the Sedins, but they were a huge part of it. And, you know, there there were times when the Sedins were at their peak where they would like have an opportunity at a two-on-one and just like skate into the corner instead of taking it because they were so confident in their ability to generate a chance uh, off the cycle. They they just were like, yeah, we don't really need, we don't really need to take this rush chance because we know, uh, we can get something better. The um, <laughs> Rager says Bix and the Naimo pick makes so much sense now. Look, I, I was going for a, a a quaint the Dallas weekend, the away. Dallas Stars of BC <laughs> the Naimo. <laughs> Uh, this one comes in, um, Chris from Nanaimo. We're we're talking about the the style or version of hockey that you See, look enjoy we're watching huge in Nanaimo. Best. Bob in Nanaimo, text. There you that go. That's a great pick, uh, Chris from Nanaimo. Know your audience says uh, best on best international hockey. Nothing better. I mean, best on best international hockey is phenomenal. Yes. I love it. When I actually it, it, this brought up a good uh, point for me though. When I'm thinking of kind of individual teams that I've loved watching, obviously the 2010 team stands out. But I actually think even, like, just from a pure watching hockey, the 2014 team, to me, was, like, almost the peak of hockey. And some people will say, like, oh, it was boring. It's like, it was boring because they just. I thought you were talking about Canucks. No, 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 no. The 2014 Canadian Olympic team. That was just like, we're better than you. It's just like, we're so good. We have the puck all the time. And like, yeah, we're not going to play like run and gun hockey because we don't need to because we just spend two minutes in your zone on every shift, shift after shift after shift. Like that kind of gets to what that's to me. That might be like the peak of the form I'm talking about. We're just we're so strong on the puck. We're Mm -hmm. just going to get it down low. We're going to be methodical. And guess what? We're going to win every game. Like that team was an absolute juggernaut that I think a lot of people forget because it obviously wasn't, you know, the team in Canada and all that. And we're going to wear you the hell out, and at some point you're going to break, and we're going to be there to capitalize over and over and over again. And you think of how mobile that defense was, and how that helps, obviously, the way you're talking about just like winning down low. You need to be able to have five guys that can do that, right? Yeah, and keep sustaining that pressure, and just the mental strain that's going to put on a, a team trying to defend that over the course of time. Teams are going to break, and like that that team. I mean, look, it helps when you have every all star in every position, but. Yeah, like, that's the experience I look at and, and think uh, what you want to see. Uh, Bob and Naimo, as you mentioned, text in. I love these texts. He says, it pains me to agree with Jamie, but you wow. can definitely dislike a team that plays boring hockey and then like them when they change their style. No one would have loved Baby if she stayed in the corner, <laughs> which is an incredible turn of phrase. But, like, why does it pain you to agree with me? It's <laughs> like, oh, this is awful, but I have to agree with Jamie. But anyways, thank you for agreeing You know with why? Because you change your style. And they're like, ah... <laughs> I thought you were gonna say it because it's like I slammed the Nanaimo pick. Bob Bob holds a grudge <laughs> about it. Uh, Brandon in Vancouver when goalies stand on their head and it's a back and forth battle of great saves. Think, Shout I, out I, to I, the I, goalie battle. I think we're getting different versions of the the, sure, the but question. I'm, I'm willing to yeah. be, you know have an expansive uh, yeah. conversation here. I, I I'll roll with it. We we talked about it like if, if, I guess if you're building a team and what like what you want your team to kind of look like. Mm. Now, I do think – that's just my own personal philosophy. I do think it matters, like, city to city to city. Yeah, I don't buy into that as much. Like, I hear what you're saying. Like, I think the Lakers need to look like Showtime all the time. Yeah. I think the Pittsburgh Steelers need to look like Steel Curtain. And I think the Vancouver Canucks need to look like a little offensive flair. But the Lakers – like even the bubble title they ran, they won. That was more of a defensive team. That wasn't a showtime team. Like it has LeBron, it has a star, mm-hmm. right? But, but that's the like style Lakers of fans. Like that. I, I think Lakers fans like every time there's a Lakers game on. Lakers fans, I just like are so ticked off. They're so ticked off. Like LeBron, how dare you drop a a dunk? Okay, like yeah, I guess he screwed up. It's like you've won a championship with Lakers fans. Seem like they hate LeBron. Yeah, well, that that to me is just an issue of like standards. Their standards are extremely high, and I get it. You've yeah. won a lot, but to me. And I know, like, Drance brings up this point, too, where it's like, oh, the Canucks, you know, they have to have a certain amount of flair and offense. That's what sells in this city. Can we try winning a cup? Like, let's yeah, see if that, uh, no, let's see course, if that would of sell. Of course. I'm pretty course. sure that would sell. But I, I, I agree with Drance. I, was like, I, I think you need some offensive pop in this city. Because, look, this is still, I, I I, know we're talking about competition here, this is still an entertainment product. And in this city, there's, the, there's options for options For people. me, if it's... Look, if you for some reason were offered a choice, like, okay, we could really easily build a highly competitive team that's like, you know, the the 90s devils and plays the trap and shuts everyone down, or we could really easily build another version of last year's avalanche. Like, yeah, sure, mm-hmm. you pick last year's avalanche, but that's not how it works. You don't get to choose between them. Like, you just got to try to build, you got to take the opportunities as they come to you and try to build whatever competitive team is is available ultimately. So, like I yeah, I guess as a tiebreaker, you lean towards offense, but it's not so embedded in the identity of the city to me where it really has to guide your decisions. Like to get to that level, I th- the the one that I always think of is like Barcelona. Barcelona soccer, right? It's like okay, mm-hmm. you better be playing like flowing p- pleasing possession football Tiki-taka. at barcelona yeah or else people are going to be really ticked off but there's very very few markets i think that rise to that level where you have to match the identity of your team to what that te- what that city wants that's fair i i just yeah especially not when you have it's one thing is like yeah if you're the lakers and you're like hey we have this incredible 20 pedigree yeah it's like okay we can be we can be a little picky we yeah. can pick and choose what we want to root for it's like now let's just let's get one and then we'll start worrying about style points and how it looks. All right? Let's just get that one out of the way. Wouldn't it be so much cooler though. Um, This one comes in uh, 650-650 uh, I didn't know it going in But my favorite team to watch was the Seattle Kraken They were fast uh, Those rushes last night, those teams don't make mistakes and They're very defensive minded, which would be good for success But the Kraken were exciting to watch I wish the Canucks could get a whole bunch of players That are good and can score 20 goals Like the Kraken, I mean well, I'm, I'm here for that but yeah I mean I think there's always a tendency to lean towards like oh I like teams that score off the rush you know teams that play that really fast pace and look I'm not immune to that that can be really fun I enjoy watching a Kale McCarr rush or obviously you mm-hmm. know Connor McDavid rush or anything like that but yeah like I just I've had the kind of realization process that just deeply embedded in me you, deeply embedded in me is a desire to see teams just rag the puck below the dots you're a big teamwork guy then Right, because that's that's linked up play, right? That's not one player being spectacular. It's not thrusting it upon a star. It's like, like hey, we're gonna lock it up, Marian Gabrick, you go break the series, right? It's it's four or five guys like putting it together and and l- leaning on yeah, teams, man. right? Absolutely, that's why like. We were talking about it earlier in the show. Like, yeah, Elias Pettersson, I think he would be great in the playoffs, but he needs uh, he needs the partners to come along uh, with him and help him out here. 650-650 uh, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can keep your thoughts coming in. What uh, What's your ideal style of hockey to watch? Uh, I did want to read this text. Jose from Lions Bay. So, obviously, the news of the day here that Kyle Dubas out as GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, Jose from Lions Bay says... Please hire Kyle Dubas and get rid of Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alveen. I am not kidding. Dubas would be an upgrade over what we have here. That is uh, Jose from Lions Bay. Look, I think there's going to be a lot of teams interested in mm-hmm. uh, in Kyle Dubas. I'm curious to hear from other listeners. Is that something that's enticing to you at all? I think when you think about the logistics and just like how new Alveen and Rutherford both are in the job where the Canucks are as a franchise, all of that, I don't see that as a, a road that they're going to go down or that they could be going down at any point. But uh, I don't know. It's when you, when you have the reputation that Kyle Dubas has, mm-hmm. and you can take issue with that, you can disagree with it, but it, he has a certain reputation around the league, you're going to have an awful lot of jobs to choose from once you're a free agent. Generally speaking, my uh, philosophy on things like this is if you believe that someone's available is better than what you have – Then you explore it. Go get it. Go get it. Now, we're talking about like substantially better and and all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. How sure are you that it's better? I like the early part of Rick Talk. We can debate timelines and whether they should have, but like when you see what Rick Talk is trying to prove, I get it. When you look what Patrick Elvine's trying to uh, do, I get it. Some people don't agree, but I get it. And there's a sense of belief in that. But there's not a a, a long track record. For someone like Patrick Alvin. Kyle Dubas has at least had a track record. Yeah. Going to the playoffs. So it's, it's high wire racked and it's difficult to pull off. And it's somewhat irresponsible to be like, hey, 18 months of this plan. Screw it. Let's scrap it up. That's the thing. But if you truly believe someone, and it's, it, it's not just that someone's better. Like this person's in that upper tier in the league. And if they're available... Yeah, you should probably well, we explore always, it. We always talk about that with coaches, right? Like, oh, Barry Trotz is on the market. How do other teams react? I'll, do you, If you're on yeah. the fence with your coach, does that push you to, ooh, you know what? We got to go and try to get it. I, I do think there's a similar... Quenville and, and uh, Denis Savard, right? Yeah. It was four games in the season. This guy's available. Boom, done. Let's yeah, do this. We're doing it. Um, and I do think there's, you know, maybe we should think about that with execs as well, considering how incredibly <laughs> important they are mm-hmm. uh, to the success of your hockey team. I almost think, and again, this is totally like fantasy scenario, but to me it would be less about moving on from Patrick and It's like, do you offer Kyle Dubas the president job? Right? Like that right. that's if if you were blue skying, like, hey, we gotta get him here, to me, that would be the play. Do you see uh, kind of an obvious landing spot for Dubas around the league? I mean, we'll see. Like though one of the things I'm curious about is does the way this all played out with Shanahan change Dubas's stance on, hey, you're not going to see me pop up somewhere with a GM job next week? Was uh, that I, just a ploy to be like – Is that now – I really like is that null and void after the yeah. Shanahan press conference today? I haven't sent the email yet, but uh, I really like it here. And then after sending the email and it not it, it being received well. Yeah. I, I Look – Kyle Dubis is a free agent. you I mean, he's free to do whatever you want if he wants to reverse course. And look, I, I said it earlier this week: GMs, coaches, execs, when they meet with the media, they're not under subpoena. It's not under oath. They can lie. It's not. It's, it's not that big of a deal. I don't take it to, to heart when they're like, "Oh, I'm planning to take a year off," and then eight days later. Uh, they... Well, and also things change. Yeah. Like, that could have been 100% true in the moment. Like, not a ploy, not bluffing mm-hmm. or anything. 100% what he thought in the moment and his truth in the moment. And then things change. Circumstances change. You're like, actually, I didn't consider that before. But all of a sudden now, like much like the Dallas Stars changed, in mm-hmm. my opinion, changed. Things change. And you got to react uh, to it as it comes up. Um, especially when you go through the process that I'm sure Kyle Dubas has uh, internally done of... I know. Again, it's it's a short turnaround to do it in just a couple of days. But nevertheless, when you when you get confirmation from family to say, "Hey, like this is what we're thinking of," and you know, you're Kyle Dubas, you go through the process. Like, do I actually want to be here? And you mentally do that. If anyone's like gone after a job or like had to to go through that process to to seek the truth out internally, yeah, I think you can come to that conclusion in a couple of days. Uh, Back to the uh, what style of hockey do you like the best? Torgy Texan. in. The style I like is fire drill, no structure, and bad defense. Because I love my Canucks, and that's what we've been watching for years. I'm optimistic about next season, though. That's fantastic. It's like, I love the cycle game because of the Sedins. Torgy loves fire wagon, complete complete chaos because of the last couple of years of the Canucks. He's just all He's accepted. He's like, hey, I guess this is what great hockey is. This is awesome. It's all I know. It's all I've seen. <laughs> uh Sabby from Langley. Uh, we got spoiled watching Amazing Hockey. Burray's Coast to Coast Rushes, Bertuzzi's push off the power play, and Nazi snipes, Sadines. Uh feeling uh reminiscent. I mean, we've had some good we, uh, we, the, like uh, I see what you're saying about there is a history of mm-hmm. dynamic, exciting hockey. Obviously, you know, the West Coast Express. Some of the most exciting stuff happening in the NHL at the time. The Sedines so unique. But, but what you're saying is everyone would trade it in. Well, yeah, for a, exactly. A of banner. course you would. Yeah, <laughs> Of course you would. And Mike from Surrey Texan, are you guys insane? I'd like to point out, it was just Beck. I was on your side, Mike. He says, been a fan since 1980. Do not care how we do it. We just want to win. Vancouver sp- fans are smart. Don't need to see offense. Just want to get on board with a winner. And that's the thing. There's so much hunger for the winner. Mm-hmm. People will... Fall in love with whatever style of team, or style the if winning team if, plays. If you're guaranteeing victory, yeah, I'll concede, I'll concede everything. If we're talking about flags flying forever. But if it's, I was like, if it's a one, if you have to sacrifice all of the aesthetic quality, all of the viewing pleasure, and play like the most dull, boring hockey for a one percent better chance at the Stanley Cup, everyone's taking that trade. Everyone is taking that trade for a one percent. For one percent. It sounds like you don't you don't want you don't want the cup here, Vic. You're not Stop. willing to make that trade no, for one percent. We're talking about guarantees, not one percent. I'm saying, but that's what you got to do. You got to look for every edge, right? But what's the percentage of winning the the cup right now? Like, in, like make everything equal is is a one in thirty two. Ah, we got to go to break. Yeah. <laughs> See, this was a great, this is a great conversation. Right. <laughs> Have a great long weekend. PDOcast is next here on Sportsnet 650.